Our next message is entitled, Preparing for Trumpets. It'll be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. Good afternoon, everyone. I was, uh, I was struggling for an introduction to my message today, but, but Reg helped me out uh, with his, uh, with his uh, message earlier. It is really interesting, isn't it, that there doesn't seem to be a correlate, as you were talking, Reg, or a type and anti-type, to, to trumpets. Um, and I've always had uh, a different theory about that, so I'm just ringing the cowbell <laughs> myself. Um, trumpets is one of those holy days. It, it's a memorial, as we know. But the use of the trumpet isn't limited to that day, is it? Um, and I'm just going to surprise Brian with an extra scripture here. In Numbers chapter 10 and verse, uh, well, just starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself, and you shall make them of hammered work, and you, you shall use them for calling of the congregation and for directing the movement of the camp. And when you blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather. And, and, and so they've got these different methods of, of calling everyone. And then we drop down to verse 9, and it says, And when you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpet, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, in the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And so, you know, as we know, trumpets is definitely presented as a holy day of the memorial of blowing of trumpets. Which one? Because we just read how many? Many different uses of trumpets. And so I have always looked at, just, just me personally, trumpets as being a memorial of every time the trumpet is blown. So it can be a memorial of the time that it's blown for war. God come help us. It can be a, a remembrance of the the times that God has come to our aid, but it can also be a memorial for the celebrations and for all the other holy days. Isn't that interesting? Because trumpets are blown over the, the feast days. They are blown and were blown at each of the daily sacrifices and peace offering. It's a constant reminder to us of everything God is trying to communicate to us and a constant reminder of every time he has answered our prayer, our call to him for, for aid. And it's interesting, if you search the Bible just for the word trumpet, and of course you can do a couple of different searches. You can search, search for trumpets. You can search for trumpet. I did it for trumpet this morning. And you get 114 references to the word trumpet. Let me ask you a question. What is the first 
incident of the trumpet. Trumpet. Now trumpets, the trumpet being blown in the scriptures. Anybody? Kind of a trick question. Anybody dare to answer the trick question? It's not at a time that we typically think of trumpets. Anybody? Nobody bold enough. Well, we find it in Exodus chapter 19. And we can, we can start reading in, in verse 1. But it was a trumpet. And the first reference of the trumpet is found here in this passage at Sinai. At the giving of the law. As, as what is commonly referred to. Which should probably more accurately be referred to as the, the re-giving of the law. Or the reestablishment of the law or the corporation of the law of God into the covenant that he was in the process of making with Israel. Now, like I said earlier, I know that this particular passage is typically used to talk about Pentecost. And maybe it's type and anti-type with the giving of the law and the giving of grace between the two. But even that is really interesting, because that might not actually align with the way things actually are. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But the way I'm looking at this passage now is because of the use of trumpets. So that's really important as we go through this. So starting in verse 1, it says, the third, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from uh, Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord had commanded them. And then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. How easily they said that statement, right? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Let me ask you another question. Why did God remind them of all the things that he had done for them? Why did he have to remind them? of the miracles that he worked for them, of the liberation that he brought to them at Passover, how he carried them, as he said, on eagles' wings. Why did he have to remind them? Why did he have to remind them that you know, they came through that, that, that sea as a way of baptism, how they escaped the bondage of Egypt and were now brought to God himself. Why did he remind 
these people of this. Simply because they are just like us. They forgot. They do forget. We forget, don't we? We forget what God has done for us. When difficulty and hardship and, and fear and worry come on us, we forget. Now, we may not forget God. We may cry out to him. We may blow our own individual trumpet, right, and, and raise the alarm. But we do so out of fear. God, help me. We forget to remember all the times that he did. So easily we forget. And, of course, Israel was exactly the same. We for can forget the times that he has saved us and forget that he has secured our salvation because we are very much like Israel. Continue in verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And I almost think that that passage should say, and, instead of and, but you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Above all the other people of the, of the world. Extra special above everyone else. They all belong to God. But you are special. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. But then we also recognize that passage a little bit, don't we? This, this line here about being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because to the church... God, through Peter, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, coming to him as a lively stone, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay... And Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And who is he writing this to? It was not the descendants of Israel, was it? Not strictly speaking. He was writing this to the church. He wasn't writing it as though they were this nation of Israel. It was to the church, this new nation. There's a link between these two scriptures. But why is there a link? Why did Peter think that? Why did he think that the church had now become this special nation, this holy priesthood? It's because of what Jesus said. 
If we turn over to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, it comes, this, this passage comes right after the parable of the landowner and the vineyard, right? And it's very much about a transfer from one people to another, the transfer of this special privileged position from one people to another. And just in case his audience didn't get that, Jesus says this in verse 42. He says to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That was pretty cutting to the audience that he's talking to. Because these are the Jews. These are the only identifiable descendants in the world of the people of Israel to whom God said this statement to before. But now, it's taken from them. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. This was not a secret. He didn't hide this. His mission was not to hide this. It was to make this happen. This is going to be taken from you and given to someone else that shows the fruits thereof. And there's something else I think that's really important for us to notice. Peter and Jesus make this very strong link between obedience and belief. Obedience and belief. Peter said that those who stumbled on the rock of the chief cornerstone did so because they did not obey. And he said that they were disobedient. But to you, the church, to the, the church that Jesus was taking the special status away from Israel and giving it to the church. The church, he says that we need to believe that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. That he is the savior. That he is the one who gathered the children of Israel in the first place. To that mountain where they heard that first trumpet blast. So believe, or belief and obedience are linked together in the faith of Abraham and the faith of Christ. So, there's very strong links between these scriptures, between the covenant relationship of Israel as God has, ch has God's chosen people and the covenant relationship Jesus made with the church as the inheritance of this relationship. As that in the inheritors, we are the inheritors of this, as the church, we should look then at the scriptures in this light, and specifically the passages of Exodus 19 and 20. We need to place ourselves in these passages and ask ourselves, would we do better? Would we be more faithful? Are we more faithful? Are we more obedient? Are we more believing than the children of Israel were as we go through this? So turning back to Exodus 19 in verse 9. It says, and the, and Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, 
that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. And that's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Again, we've got this idea that we need to believe. But what are we believing? I mean, what are they trying to believe? That God is? Well, he's right there making the whole ground shake. So I don't think it was that. They could clearly believe that. They could see it with their eyes. So what is it he's asking us to believe? And not just for a moment, but forever. That word there means forever. Continually, forever. So what is it that we are supposed to believe throughout the ages? So it says, Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. And tomorrow, let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, uh, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near to your wives. And then it came to pass on that the third day in the morning that they were, there were thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud. Now we know from scripture, we all remember from scripture about the last trumpet, don't we? This is the first trumpet. The first time that is... This word is used in scripture, the first trumpet. And I think we'll see there's a correlate with the last trumpet. The trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice from the mountain. Could you imagine being there and hearing that? And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Was he thinking, I just came up here. You want me to go back down again? I'm going to get worn out. But he had. He had just come up to the mountain, probably quaking in every step, and then God said, you need to go back down and tell them not to touch the mountain. So he said, 
Go down and warn them, lest they perish. And also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, and you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through uh, to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Pretty bold, though, wasn't he? We already told them this. God, they're not going to touch the mountain. You get down there and tell them one more time. Why? Because they are a forgetful people, aren't they? Just like us. Just like our kids. Do not touch that. I told you not to touch. How many times do I have to tell you to not touch that? Which is probably something my mother said to me about the electrical socket quite a lot. We've talked about this scripture before. And I was hoping actually to get a couple of sound files together and I just didn't, didn't have time this morning. But for us to envision in our mind, right, in our mind's ear, this just oscillating power rumbling in our chest of the thunder, the earth, the air itself just starting to crackle and burn and the smell of rock being burnt and dirt being burnt, whatever plant life may have been up on the top of the mountain, just being burned. And then this ear-splitting trumpet sound. Every single eye was looking at that mountain. There was nobody fooling around with anything else. God had everybody's attention. Why would he do that? Why would he come down in such power? Because, you know, he came down as a man to others. He ate with Abraham. He wrestled with, with Jacob. It was precisely that, to get everybody's attention. Are you paying attention? This is the most important thing you will ever observe and see in your life. What I am about to do to you, my special holy people, it would get our attention. So, does God have our attention? Are we focused right now in getting ready and preparing ourselves for the Feast of Trumpets with everything that that day represents does he have our attention are we paying attention to what he is trying to teach us or are we distracted are we distracted with the struggles of life are we distracted with the hardships that we might have does God have to intervene with a trumpet blast in our life for us to finally pay attention to him. I don't want that. I do not want my day interrupted by a trumpet blast, be it physical or metaphorical, spiritual. I do not want him to have to get my attention that way. So it's interesting. Israel was told to prepare 
And it is also interesting, isn't it, that they were told to prepare for three days. Another biblical number. Get ready, because in three days, I am going to need you to be ready. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Let them be ready. Are we ready? Are we ready for the day of trumpets? For the feast of trumpets? Specifically, are we ready for the trumpet blasts that we know are going to come on this earth? That we may actually observe with our own eyes and our own ears. Are we ready? As I said earlier, we've commonly tied this passage to Pentecost. But we can also tie it to trumpets. Because as I said, I think trumpets is a memorial of all the times that the trumpet is blown. And it is blown on every holy day. And it is blown at every sacrifice. And it is blown at every alarm when we cry out to God for help. And Israel cried out for help. And on a broader sense, being prepared for the trumpet blast that will come in the future, as I said before. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged at the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, that it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Beautiful passage. We, we read this a lot, as I say, around Pentecost. Are we ready? Are we ready for this day that is announced with a trumpet blast? We are finally gathered up. Is our name written in the register? Is it there? So that when we assemble, we have the right to be there. Could you imagine if you were one of the children of Israel who didn't wash their clothes? Right? And you're standing amongst everybody else and they're all like nice and clean and prepared and ready. And you were not. I would not want to be that person. We have to be ready for the trumpet, for the day of trumpets, for the time when that trumpet blast will be, will be blown. And notice something else. Paul did not say that Jesus was the the author or the mediator of a new set of commandments. 
Notice that. It's a new covenant. There are no new commandments. Jesus already has told us everything that we know, that we need to know. He bound up the Lord, made it even more stringent, didn't he, when he walked the earth. He did not bring new commandments. He brought a new covenant of which the old law is a part. A covenant, interestingly enough though, that is built on grace. We sometimes think, and I referred to this earlier, that the law came first, right? The law came first and then, then Jesus came, God brought his grace and saved us. That's the narrative, and that's certainly the narrative that the, the traditional Christian world will preach. Except that's not what happened. Before the children of Israel got to Sinai, before they were able to engage in this contract with God, in which he baked in his law, what happened first? They were saved out of Egypt. Grace came first. Every time. How do we know to keep the law except God gave it to us? That itself is an act of grace. So that we can follow his law and keep ourselves out of trouble. Maybe just a little bit more out of trouble. But grace came first. And then he gave us the law and the covenant. So God hears our cries. Just as he heard the cries of the children of Israel. And he had mercy on them. He gave them grace. So that they came out of Egypt. Out of sin. And then he brought them to this place. Where he gave them his law. We all know that personally. While we were yet sinners. What did, what's the rest of it? Christ died for us. In many cases, before we even really knew anything about the law, or very little, grace comes first. As James tells us, we get the law then as a gift, perfect law of liberty. He says in, in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if everyone or anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and forgets what kind of man he was. Look at that forget word again. Because we so easily forget. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And it is not the law to condemn us. It is not a mirror that when we look at it, we see all of our faults. It's a mirror in which we can see Christ working in us, helping us slowly, day by day, maybe too slowly, to become more like him. Israel, like us, did not receive the law and the covenant in captivity because they received it when they were free. The law of God is for a free people. It is the perfect law of liberty. 
So turn back to Exodus chapter 20. And in verse 1, we say, we, we read this passage, we know it very well. Many of us have these words maybe on, uh, on something in our home, on the wall, reminding us as we storm through the house yelling at the kids, thou shalt not murder, right there, it's right there. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. How are we doing? Do we have any other gods before him? Again, this isn't the law that is to condemn us. This is to remind us. This is a memorial, like the blowing of the trumpet, reminding us. Do we put anything else ahead of God? Do we put anything ahead of the work that he is doing in our life? He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image and the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And what has humanity done throughout entire history? You can go to museum after museum after museum and see nothing but idols of creatures, of images from the stars all the way down to the ocean. Do we do this in our life, personally? Do we take images in our mind's eye of things that are becoming more important to us than God? He said, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I'm sure, like me, you've heard plenty of sermons just built on that one passage alone, right? That one commandment. That it's not just, perhaps, cursing and using na the names of God in an inappropriate way. But it's perhaps living inappropriately and claiming his name on us. Let's not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Hey, we're doing this next one pretty good. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor, nor you, your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. But again, we might be here, we might be gathered at church, but do we keep the Sabbath day holy? And I'm not talking about some prescription that people have to follow. Because remember, this is the perfect law of liberty, isn't it? 
You are free between you and your God to understand from him how this should be followed. So, let's not condemn one another. Because I know at times the Sabbath is used that way. But let us also work to keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. See, that goes back to, you know, you really rile your parents up, they might just murder you. And that's, we don't want that. I, I often say when I hear about people that live a very, very long time, I always say they must have been good to their mom and dad. Right? God gives us this blessing. He honors it if we honor our father and our mother, how we live our lives, and how we are respectful to our parents. And I know that's a challenge, especially as we enter the teenage years. It's difficult to understand that our parents know anything at all. But of course, they know way more than we ever gave them credit for. You shall not murder. Well, hopefully we all don't have a problem with that one. Or do we? Because as we know, Jesus said, you're angry at your brother. Okay, maybe we have a problem with that one sometimes. You shall not commit adultery. Same challenge, isn't it? Adultery, it doesn't happen in the bedroom. It happens in the mind. For men and women both in perhaps different ways. But we have to work on that as well. You shall not steal. Notice the spelling is different from my last name. I've had some people spell my name that way. I'm like, really? Who's going to keep a name like that? You shall not steal. Just don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's a tough one too, isn't it? Because again, it happens in the mind and boy, you know it, the tongue is down the road and over the hill and it's running off. You should not bear false witness. Not just lying, but just adjusting the truth according to our own view. Man, that happens so much at work. Do you guys see that happening at work a lot? Political goals that people have, and so they just tell half-truths. And they're bearing false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And none of my neighbors have oxes or donkeys. So I'm safe with part of that. But do we covet, right? And this, of course, comes all the way back to the first commandment and the second commandment about putting other things ahead of God. Do we covet things that should not, that we should not covet? And so all the people witnessed the thunderings the lightnings, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the 
the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. There was no chance that anybody was going to touch the mountain after all, was there? They were staying as far back as they could. And then they said to Moses, you go up there. <laughs> we're staying down here. You go up. Speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, or to try you, to see, are you made of the right stuff? Are you going to follow him or not? He's not here to kill you. He's not here to kill us. He's not here to give us this law and then with a hammer wait for us to break it. That's not what he's giving us this law for. He's giving it to us so that we can live. One of them even has an extra special blessing of living long on the land. He wants us to live in freedom with the law that he has given us. So the people stood far off, but Moses drew near the thickness and uh, the thick darkness where God was. Pretty incredible guy. Pretty bold, strong. But he, of course, was not free from his own weaknesses, was he? And after everything that he did, if we read the story to the end, right before they're, they're going to enter the land, of course, he cannot go in because he sinned. Even Moses sinned. But, of course, he was still given God's grace. This law is far from being accepted or believed in, unfortunately, most churches today. Grace plus nothing. And that's just not true. As we see from this, grace brought the children of Israel out from Egypt. And grace gave them the perfect law of liberty. And then, of course, the world... The world will never understand the commandments that God has given us. It's ignored in almost every walk of life. Perhaps the only ones are not murdering. Most people don't murder, right? But a lot of people do. A lot of people do. In the end, at the very end, at the last trump, what will people hear? After the last trump, what will they hear? Well, let's take a look. Firstly, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Picking it up in verse 50, we know this passage very well. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Who's looking forward to that? Okay, there's about five of us. <laughs> Who's looking forward to that? Amen. 
we shall be changed. So many days that I really wish I've been changed already. And I know you guys really wish I've been changed already. <laughs> but this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This happens at the last trump, doesn't it? Paul said, at the last trump, are we ready? We've been given three days to prepare. Don't, don't worry. Not literal three days. Or maybe, I don't know. But we have been given time, haven't we? We've been given this life, however long it may be, to prepare. And we've been given these holy days to help us remember. And we've been given the Feast of Trumpets to help us remember all the holy days. And every time God has intervened and saved us. So are we ready? Are we ready for that last trump? Are we prepared for the day when literally the whole world will hear the trumpet blast? Every eye will look to the heavens. Every ear will hear it, but not every heart will welcome it, right? Will we? Are we ready for that day? Do we look forward to it in hope or in dread? The whole world will see it. When we're finally standing before God, the God of the whole earth, when he is descending through the earth with that thunder and maybe that burning and the very earth itself is shaking. When he comes back, we, if we are prepared for that day, will finally be free. Free. In every way that we could ever hope to be and imagine, we will be free. But what would the rest of the world do? What will the rest of the earth do and all the people that are on it? What will they do? Well, Isaiah tells us in chapter 2, after all of the things that have been done, after all the wars and all the struggle, and after the last trumpet, when Jesus returns, we do something very beginning. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1. It says the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days at the end of all of this mess in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountain. Here is another mountain. God likes mountains. It shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion 
Out of that mountain, Mount Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We come all the way back to the beginning, don't we? God will give us the law again. He will give the world the law again. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And because of that, because of these two things, his judgment and his law, we see something that has never happened in all of human history finally happen. And this is the end of it. He puts down all law and all authority and only his authority, only his judgment, only his law is supreme. And because of that, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Are we ready?